Thank you for downloading and listening to the Berean Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Berean Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. This morning, um, uh, she mentioned, because she, I, I was gone last week, and she said, uh, what was the chapter we're going to read for uh, this morning's service? Because we're reading each week the chapter ahead of time. And I told her Nehemiah 7. And uh, she read Nehemiah 7. And then she said to me, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 7. Let's turn there before I get any more trouble. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 7. And uh, last week Gary preached on chapter 6. And uh, we actually, as we've been studying Nehemiah together, uh, we have been... uh, watching and going through the building of the walls of Jerusalem. As Nehemiah has come back to Jerusalem to help the contingent of people who came back under Zerubbabel, who had come back to rebuild the temple, but the walls were down. And all of a sudden, they got to a very discouraging, all of a sudden, over a period of time, they got to a very discouraging time where the work came to a stop because they were at the mercy of their enemies. They were not protected. The walls were down. And uh, Nehemiah is burdened by God to go. And so Nehemiah uh, goes back to Jerusalem and begins the process and the project in face of adversity from without, adversity from within. And he gets the walls, gets the people to finish. And we saw last week in chapter 6, as Gary uh, preached on this, that they finished the walls of Jerusalem. And you'll notice there are many chapters left uh, in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, chapters... 1 to 6 are the rebuilding of the walls. Chapters 8 to 10 have to do with the rebuilding of the people, the spiritual revival of the people. Chapters 11 to 13 will have to do with the organization of the community and the community of faith in Jerusalem. Now you notice I said chapters 1 to 6, 8 to 10, and 11 to 13. I left out chapter 7. And I'm going to suggest this morning as we read chapter 7 that we'll see how it's really connected with the section of chapters 11 through 13. So chapter 7, and let's look to the Lord in prayer as we open God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your Word. Uh, we thank you for that uh, freedom we have today, Lord. Uh, that, as Michael has shared uh, regarding the Scriptures, we know that in so many places today it's not even possible or legal for people to own a Bible And yet Gideon Bibles make their way all over the world. And we just thank you for that. We thank you for the freedom we have, the access to your words. Lord, help us never to take this lightly. May we preach your word carefully. Father, I just pray our hearts would be open to your word today, that there's something that you would teach each one of us. We know the Apostle Paul said, All Scripture is profitable and is useful for our edification, for our service and our training in righteousness. And so we pray as we read this section from Nehemiah today that uh, you will open each of our hearts to learn something from your word and apply it to our lives. In our Savior's uh, wonderful name, we do pray together. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 7. Let's read verses 1 through 5. We're not going to read through the entire chapter. That is the reason why when we send out the email, we ask that you read the chapter before you come to church. And uh, you can always check our church webpage, the www.brian-shoreline.org, and you will find that uh, note on there as well. 
and the, uh, the, the chapter that we will be studying together on Sunday morning. So I would like to read verses 1 to 5. After the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. The city, now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. And this is what I found written there. There's really quite a bit in this first uh, section of narrative about uh, this part of the story of the, of, of the rebuilding and the settling of uh, Jerusalem. And you notice that we see in verse 1 that the the walls are built, the doors in place. And you'll notice that he appoints, the, interesting with these categories, he appoints the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites. And it is interesting that all three of those are mentioned. The gatekeepers normally would have been the gatekeepers at the temple. Uh, not generally did the city walls have to have these particular gatekeepers. These, these are the gatekeepers from the temple. But in this sort of crisis, an unusual situation, the walls are built, but they are still in danger of attack from without and possibly from within. And so it's very important that with the walls up and with the gates in place, that they still have to be on their watch for attack by their enemies. And so the gatekeepers are mentioned, but isn't, isn't it interesting that also the singers, you would think in this sort of crisis situation and this unusual situation, um, that singers wouldn't be that important. So, I'm not done yet, Chris. Okay? <laughs> I said you might think that. I didn't say you would think that. Okay. <laughs> and uh, but a good point. And if you see in the Old Testament, you will notice throughout the history of the Old Testament that uh, from the time of the giving of the law all the way through, and this is this is the when we finish this book of Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, we are finishing the history of the Old Testament. Yes, there are many books to follow, but they fold back into that history. So at this very end of the Old Testament history, we see this application, how important the singers are, the worshiping of God. These were, you know, if you go back to the books of Moses, there were these groups of people specifically tasked with the role of singing and leading the people in worship of God. And they were part of the Levitical system. And we see this with the dedication of the first temple with King Solomon, how important they were. And we'll see this later on in this book of Nehemiah. So the singers are very important. And it's very important to the family and the community of God that the worship of God in this context continues. And these singers might have even been appointed along with the gatekeepers to watch the, the walls and the gates of the city. And so it may be, the inference may be, you have the gatekeepers, you have the singers, and you have the Levites appointed to do all their jobs in the temple, for example, but the temple is still being reconstructed, 
It may be around the city, the, gate, the gates of the city, that the singers and the Levites are also serving and functioning along with the gatekeepers throughout the city. But I just think it's interesting that the singers are important and worship of God in every situation and the, and the life of, of the people's passion for God is, is so critical. This is why, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in the early church, we see in Ephesians and, and, and the Colossians, to, 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 when Paul says to, to share the songs among yourselves and with, with music, to, to worship God, but also to teach God's word. He specifically says to instruct one another. And so as we worship, and I'm, so, I'm, so, um, I'm just so glad that music is such an important part of our Christian church life. Aren't you? Yes. I mean, if we just got together, and, and I know that some people maybe would prefer just, just preaching and talking, but the worship and the music is, is part of, our, our, of helping us to, to focus on God. There's something about music, as we all know, that, that touches our lives in so many levels. And that's why it is so important. And I am thankful for our, our choir. I'm so thankful that they come and, and put the time in every Wednesday to practice for those who play the instruments and lead worship. It's such an important part. And, and a lot of work goes into this every Sunday. Every Sunday, a lot of work, as you know, goes into preparing this service so that we can worship together. So the singers and the Levites, who would be in charge of the sacrificial system, are all appointed. And they, and they are there to help guard the gates and, and to watch over the city. And then you notice these two men mentioned, Hananiah, we saw in the, in the first chapter, he was one of the ones who came from Jerusalem, made the trip all the way back to Persia, that, that, that came to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah said, how goes, it, how goes it in Jerusalem? And he's the one that said, not well. And, it very, and, we, and I think, personally, I believe, and it certainly is possible from the interpreted scripture here, that this actually is his real brother. That this is Nehemiah's blood brother. I have no reason to think it's not. That's not just a generic sense of saying a brother. And so Hananiah comes, but he comes along with another man named Hananiah. Now, I know the names are very similar, but they're two different people. Hananiah, who is the commander of the citadel. And because of his role of commanding the citadel, the citadel was part, and it's a part of the protection always in the north. Jerusalem was always attacked from the north. If you look at a map, Jerusalem, there's valleys on either side all the way around to the south. It's always attacked from the north, uh, generally. That's its most vulnerable place. And so that's where the citadel and the fortresses are built. And so this man commanded, he, was, he had some military significance in commanding that northern exposure to Jerusalem. But you notice what it says here about him, and this is important. And this is important about Nehemiah. That Nehemiah has the wisdom and the spiritual insight to put these type of people in charge. This is a very difficult and tenuous situation. They are very vulnerable to many things at this point. Uh, many weaknesses. And notice he says that this man was a man of integrity and he feared God more than most men do. I mean, you couldn't, what else could you ask for? You know, we all know that we're coming to election time. And as you, as you cast your ballots and as you vote for people, are not these qualities something that are important to you? Integrity, and, and, and certainly we, we would want people who fear God. And that's important to us. And, and, and here's, here's the, kind of, the kind of people that Nehemiah put in charge. This is the kind of man Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was that kind of man. 
And he had this spiritual sense for his people and for the sake of God's work to do this. And I, just, I don't think it's for naught that it's mentioned here specifically that Nehemiah put this man in charge who had great integrity and he was a man who feared, a man who, who worshipped and who loved God more than any, than any others. And so Nehemiah put him in charge. And then you'll notice what he says in verse 3. And so we see here, we're going to see here this combination of watchfulness, you know, God's enemies, you know, and we know from Ephesians chapter 6 today, there is a spiritual warfare that is going on. I mean, Paul clearly talks about that. And it's important for us to be reminded of this in Ephesians chapter 6, that there is a spiritual warfare. And then Paul tells us to stand against the forces of evil, but then he also gives us the equipment, the, the, the spiritual armor uh, to stand. And then he talks at the very end to be watchful, to be watchful. You know, I, you, you probably know from your lives that it's the times we're most vulnerable, that we're most vulnerable to, to temptations, to evil, uh, to, to, to the attacks by, by Satan's, you know, we say Satan and those who work with him who are directly opposed to God's work, oftentimes we're most vulnerable at the times where things are going the best. Have you noticed that in your life? That a lot of times when, when, when things are all of a sudden going so well and, and we kind of relax about maybe our spiritual fervor and, 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 we're, and we're, we're, in, we're, we're vulnerable. And the wall is finished. It would be very easy to, to lower their watchfulness and say, the wall is done. We are now protected. But Nehemiah knows better. And, and, and the Apostle Paul tells us to be watchful, to be watchful in prayer, to, to, to pray for one another, to pray for our families, to pray for our children and our grandchildren and our friends, to be watchful in prayer and to be prepared. You know, what does the, the general epistle say? That our, our adversary, the devil, goes about like what? A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's a pretty, pretty fearsome picture. But that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that. And we, and we believe, as it says in our doctrinal statement, we do believe that Satan is a, is a very real, personal devil. He's not just a, that's just not a word for, for evil in the universe. We believe specifically in our church, in the history of the evangelical Orthodox Christian faith, that Satan is a personal being who is opposed to God's work and does all he can to stop it. Be watchful. And so Nehemiah is watchful. But you also notice that Nehemiah combines with that watchfulness godly leadership. Godly leadership. When, when we appoint elders and leaders in our church, and, and we, when we appoint teachers for your children and grandchildren, whether it's in the early childhood division or whether it's in our youth division, we take it seriously. We don't, we don't just... We aren't just filling spots with anybody who's willing if they don't have some of the, they'll have the spiritual guidelines and qualifications. We're not looking for perfection, but we are looking for godly people to lead and teach in this church. And we have a history and tradition of that, and we have many, many teaching and leadership roles to fill in our church because we're committed to Christian education. Godly leadership. And then we see good organization. To see the combination of that, of good organization. Look what he says here. And you notice in verse 3 that the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. And while the gatekeepers are on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Now, it's interesting, in the Hebrew language, it's very possible to, to interpret, to translate this. And some of the, the, the commentaries I looked at, who are, who are good Hebrew scholars that mention this, it's, it might even be a better translation that uh, an, 
this idea that when the gates, when the sun is hot, to bar the gates. And the idea is, could possibly be that in the Mediterranean culture and in this part of the world, in the Middle East, remember this is Persia, this is modern day Iran, okay, that it, it can get very hot during the midday. And there is in this part of the world what, what we might call like, you know, the siesta time, this time where after lunch where you, where you, you, you take a nap or you rest, you don't work physical work necessarily in the hottest time of the day, but you need, later on in the afternoon, the early evening you do that. And we know from history, literally, that there were significant battles that were fought in cities that were overrun because their guard was down during that time of day. Do any, do any of you after lunch ever get sleepy? <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and, uh, but in our culture, we don't, take, we don't go home and take time for that, you know. But, but, but this is, and so it might be that what he's really saying here is during that very hot time of the day, bar the gates and watch them and watch out for your enemies. That's a very possible interpretation, translation of that. So he combines watchfulness. He combines, combines godly leadership and good organization and a balance between organization, leadership, and dependence on God. Because I want you to notice the, the transitions here to the next section of this, that verse 8, uh, verse says, so my God put it into my heart. And we combine with this the sensitivity and dependence on God. Watchfulness itself is not enough. Godly leaders by themselves are not enough. And good organization, as important as it is, is not enough if it's separated, if it's separated from being sensitive to God's will. And so Nehemiah and, and the reason, here's what he's sensitive about. He's got a problem. Nehemiah has a problem as the leader of this, of this whole project. And that is, verse 4, the city is large. Um, the walled city of Jerusalem, I've told you before, would be equivalent to approximately walking around Green Lake. Green Lake's about 2.8 miles. The actual walled city of Jerusalem, although it's changed over the centuries at times from different building projects, is about 2.8 miles if you were to walk around the walls even today of the old city. It's large. It's spacious. But there aren't very many people living there. Because during the time that the city was destroyed, people didn't have homes there. They didn't live there. They lived in the outlying areas. And when they came back to rebuild the temple, they came back and settled in, their, in their, some of their traditional homes and in the outlying areas, and they would come into the city to work on the temple. But not that many people had really settled in the city and built homes there. There were homes, as we see here, but it was not as occupied as it would need to be in order to really, def if, 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 if they were attacked by their enemies. This is the problem. They need more people in this urban area of the city of Jerusalem. How do you get the people in the city? How do you get people to come and live in the city when their homes are elsewhere? This is his problem. This is his problem. And so, what he, he says, God put it in my heart, and here's what God puts in his heart. God puts in his heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, the common people, for registration by families, and I found that genealogical record, those who had been the first to return. Now, I think it's important that Nehemiah specifies God put this in his heart, because if, if you know the Old Testament history at all, there was a particular 
point of time in which an individual got in big trouble for taking a census of the people. Do you remember, remember when that was? Who was that? King David. If you remember in, in King David's life, he took a census of the people, and as soon as he did it, his heart was, was struck that he realized he had sinned against God. And the sin apparently seems to be he was trying to number how many people from Judah he could count on to fight for him against the rest of Israel, rather than depend on God. And, and it, was, it was a serious blunder, if you will, a sin that uh, the people paid for. Uh, in that, in that, There's a whole story, you can read that in, in the Chronicles and in Samuel and Kings, in that, in that section of the Bible. So he makes the point of saying, God put this in my heart. God put this in my heart. And he numbers the people. And here's what he found. And this is this passage of Scripture then. Like, let's be honest. We find these in the Bible, these genealogical records that our eyes can kind of glance over. And it's okay. It's okay. Gary gave us permission some some weeks ago to not have to read Leviticus if we don't want. Remember that, Gary? You're going to forever be remembered for telling us we don't have to read Leviticus. Okay? I also understand you said some things about me last week, too. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Let's see you tomorrow, Gary. Okay. So, here's what, here's what he says here. Here's the record. Let's just read the first part. Verse 6. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with... Zerubbabel, and this, this name is very important because he is a legitimate, um, from the line of David. He's a legitimate ruler from the line of David, and he had come down there and was sort of the governor. And then you have Joshua. Uh, Joshua is the legitimate line of the priesthood. And so if you put yourself in their context, they've got a city. They've been allowed to come back. They are rebuilding the temple. They have a governor from the house of David. They have a priest from the house of Aaron. They know the Old Testament prophecies that God is going to bring them back and reestablish the kingdom in Israel, the Messianic kingdom, if you will. And if you read the book of Zechariah, you will get good insight into this, that there is a lot of fervor and nationalism and hope that could this be that promised Messianic kingdom? Well, it didn't happen. We know that. We know that the Messiah did not come back because Jesus Christ came hundreds of years later. But it's sort of a precursor. It's sort of a, a, an open door to get a glimpse into it. And there's a lot of excitement. And so, you, so he, lists, he begins to list all these people. And then he has in verse, the end of verse 7, verse 8, the list of the men of Israel... The descendants of Perosh, of Shephalah, of Ara, and he gives the specific numbers. So we're not going to read all these names. And uh, when you read this, it's, it's always interesting to read these lists when, when, when you're reading through the Scripture, just because as you're reading through this, um, you know, you, you will notice some names that you might recognize, and you, and you might notice some things like uh, verse 39, the priests, verse 43, the Levites, Verse 44, the singers. Verse 45, the gatekeepers. Verse 46, the temple servants. 
In verse 57, the descendants of the servants of Solomon. In verse 60, the temple servants and the descendants of the servants of Solomon. So at least you see these categories. Now, there is a particular group that's kind of interesting. You notice that the following came up, verse 61, from the towns of Tel Melah, Tel Harah. Interestingly, the word Tel in the, in the Hebrew just simply means the hill of, or the, the mountain, the mound of. But then it says, they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. And then, verse 63, among the priests, there were descendants. In verse 64, these searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor therefore ordered them not to eat of any of the sacred meat until there should be a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. And so here you've got a group of people who cannot prove their genealogical connection with Israel or, in the particular case, that they were not legitimate members of the priesthood. Now, you might read that and it might seem a little harsh, you know, like, wow, you know, these people just couldn't come up with the right paperwork, you know. Um, you know, you ever lost your passport or couldn't find your birth certificate, you know, you have to get a new one and so on. Is that what's going on? Or what we're seeing here is Nehemiah's genuine concern for the integrity and health of his people because it is very possible, what we have seen throughout the last several chapters, the attacks by their enemies and every angle they could use to try to stop this work. And it's very possible that this could be one of those angles to try and get people in there either with false papers, marginal connections, that they could say, yes, we're, we're true priests, and get in there and change how things are being done, uh, foster uh, revolt against Nehemiah. Uh, there's also, so this, this is this, it, it, I think we can use the word purity. This is important. Now, you know, in a sense, we have, this is not any kind of ethnic cleansing or anything like that. This is for the sake of the purity for what's happening. It would be important, for example, in our church, one of the, you know, if, if someone's going to serve on our elder board, obviously they need to be able to sign the doctrinal statement of our church. Not that it means that those of you that can are second-class Christians or anything like that. But in terms of the, 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 the governing board of our church, there does need to be a certain, a, a certain unity about our church doctrine, so we're not changing them every time we turn around or something. And so, um, you know, this is important, what's going on here. This is what's important. So there's this balance, again, between organization, leadership, dependence on God, and what's so, what, why, I, I guess here's a question that maybe, you know, let's be honest, kind of comes to our mind. You know, we only have a certain amount of Scripture. You know, God could have given us a lot more revelation. There are so many things that, that we would like to know about. Wouldn't you like to know more about heaven? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like to know more, you know, when I get asked these questions, will we know each other, you know, um, what will we do? What's it going to be like? Um, you know, what was it like in the Old Testament to do this and that? Um, what about some of the stories of some of the patriarchs that were missing, like Isaac? We're not told much. There's all these things we'd like to know. Why does God take up space in our Bible with these lists of names that we could easily just summarize? Why is this so important to what is happening in the book of Nehemiah. These genealogical records. What is happening here is, well, let's just, let's just stop here for a moment and go to chapter 11. 
what is going to be the point of all these records and numbers of how many people? Why, why the numbers? Why do we have to know that 835 came from this family and 1,063 came from this family and 241 came from this family? Well, the next chapters 8 through 10 have to do with the rebuilding of the people, the spiritual life of the people. But chapter 11, and many of the, again, many of the authors that I read and as I studied, prepared for this, made this connection. Now, chapter 7 really connects with chapter 11 because you'll notice here, now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Twice in this chapter we have the phrase holy city. It's only a handful of times in the Old Testament. While the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns, the people commanded all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. And then we have this list of names again. So uh, putting chapter 7 and chapter 11 together, what Nehemiah is doing, he's preparing to populate the city of Jerusalem. And frankly, you didn't necessarily want to live in Jerusalem. You might want to live there today, you know. But at this time, um, it, it was a very... Uh, dangerous place. It was, it, was, it was a difficult place. Their farms and their homes were out there. They had to start from scratch. This is, not, this is not what you necessarily wanted to do. And so what's going on here is Nehemiah is compiling this list and then they're going to ask for 10%. I thought we could call this sermon the 10 percenters. Okay? Anyway, he was asked for, for 10% to come and live in Jerusalem. And to make that sacrifice to come and live in Jerusalem. And that's why we can combine these two chapters and see what all this genealogical record and numbering is about. Because it comes in handy when they have to do this. That's his goal, is to populate Jerusalem. And I want to remind you that the people that left Babylon, when, when, when the king of Persia made a decree and said, all the Jews who want can leave Babylon, leave Persia, and go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, the vast majority of the Jewish people chose to stay in Babylon. Only 50,000 approximately went back to to Palestine, went back to Jerusalem. Because it was a tremendous sacrifice. Actually, life was good in Persia. They were treated well. They were allowed to, to have businesses. They were allowed to farm. They were allowed to... And the things that we know in Judaism today, the synagogue, the rabbinical schools. So many of the Jewish traditions came out of that, that time in Babylon slash Persia in which they lived and really and were able to develop their, their, their religious um, practices. And, they, and, they, for the, and finally they moved away from, sacri- from sacrificing to idols and idolatry was no longer a, a problem for them. And life, frankly, was good in Babylon and in Persia. And it was a tremendous sacrifice to go back to Jerusalem. It cost a lot in a lot of ways. And it was dangerous. And what we have here in this genealogical record in chapter 7 is a record of those people who made that sacrifice and went back. And then in chapter 11, those who who were chosen by Lot and it says they volunteered. And I think what that means is when their lot was cast and they, and, and they were drafted, they got the lottery, you know, and they got the number, 
they they willingly went. They didn't they didn't try to you know get a deferment or anything else. They went because that's that's what God wanted them to do. And so we have this this history here of the sacrifice of those people. And then finally, chapter seven concludes that um, with with the with the giving. You'll notice in verse seventy. Some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governor, which is me, Nehemiah, okay, without saying himself, he says, I gave 1,000 drachmas of gold, 50 bowls, 530 garments for the priests. Some of the heads of the families gave. And then he lists the money, the financial contributions these people made. Where did they get this money? Where did Nehemiah get 1,000 drachmas of gold? He earned this in Babylon. He worked for the king. And these people brought their family treasures with them and their resources. And when they got to Jerusalem, Nehemiah says they willingly, sacrificially gave to the rebuilding of the walls and to the repopulation efforts, just as we do today. Kevin mentioned this morning we're at 99,000, I think it was, in our our missionary pledge. We uh, we raised $120,000. We have a... We have a reputation in our fellowship of churches that we belong to as being one of the most generous churches toward missions. Do you know that? And I'm not bragging here. I'm just telling you that's an important part of our work. That's why we're going to take a separate offering this morning for the Gideon ministry because we believe strongly in helping and being a part of these ministries. You give sacrificially to support this work. You give sacrificially to support missionary work. You don't have to do that. You could spend that money somewhere else. There are all sorts of things that you could use that money for. But and, and you know, and you notice if you if you if you've been here for any time or if you're visiting today, we don't stand up here and, and beg for money, and we don't stand up and make a big deal about money. This is the one time here we really put a push on is for our missionary pledge because it's kind of a pledge drive. Because God has God has 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 blessed us with a congregation. We're not a rich congregation. Now, according to the world standards, as Michael told us today, we are a rich people. Let's face it. Every one of us, compared to living in a dollar something a day, we're an average congregation. But we give sacrificially, and these people gave sacrificially. And it concludes that the priests, the Levites, verse 73, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. And this is what connects us to chapter 11. That these people went back and settled in their towns. But we find in chapter 11 that 10% came and filled the city of Jerusalem and made this sacrifice. Now as we close this morning, our application of this passage to our lives today. Paul, Apostle Paul says all Scripture is profitable. It's worth knowing it because it's God's Word and it's also applicable to our lives. And these, these principles that cross the ages, the dispensations that, that are general. And I think in this particular place, Raymond Brown, one of the commentators, that, an InterVarsity Press author, said, he, he said, Here, here's several principles. Verse 1, the adoration of God and communication of truth. Verse 2, the integrity and reverence for God. Verse 5, the quest for guidance that God put it in my heart. Verse 39 to 60, the privilege of serving and the diversity of gifts, the gatekeepers, the Levites, the singers, the Solomon's temple workers, this diversity of gifts. 
Verses 61 to 65, the pursuit of holiness, this purity issue that these people are not legitimate priests. And for now, until the Urim and Thummim is brought out, which were used to make those decisions, we can't accept it. But the Urim and Thummim say you're legitimate, we'll accept it. This purity, the pursuit of holiness, and the grace in the last few verses of generosity. The importance of our heritage, friends, and I think as, as believers today, the importance of our heritage as a community of faith. We know we live in an era and a time where history sometimes is, is relegated to a, a very secondary role. But as a Christian faith community, we are built on the foundation of others. Our forefathers and foremothers, if you will, that have built our foundation. History is important. And we have so many places in the New Testament where we find this, this connection and this, this understanding of what God has done. You know, with Timothy, Paul's last letter, Timothy is reminded of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice and the role that they had and how they had faith and, that the, and he now has faith as well. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. Paul says to the church at Ephesus who, who are who are a strong contingent of Gentiles, along with the Jews there. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, using this temple language for them to understand that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so in that sense, we are a temple today as the church, the body of Christ. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. The apostles and the prophets and those that followed, as the Apostle Paul told Timothy, the things you've heard from me, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others and on and on and on. And we have a history, my friends, that's over 2,000 years old now, that we have a history that's important for us to remember. People have made great sacrifices. The Scriptures, when the Bible was translated into English for the common person, people died for that. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that people were actually martyred and butchered because they dared translate the Bible into a common tongue for the people to have that was a threat against the church. And people died for that. People around the world today, uh, next month, November, is the national day of, uh, for, the, for, the, for the persecuted church. People around the world today are suffering for the sake of the gospel. People have given, they have contributed, people have studied hard and, and worked out the language of doctrine and theology, things we take for granted today. When we talk about the Trinity and the deity of Jesus Christ, and for several centuries, people wrestled with this and, and, and were kicked out of the church and so forth till they hammered out the language that says, this is what we believe. We have a history at this church, and we want to find that balance always, of course, of, of, of hearkening back to our history, but looking ahead to the future. And we don't want anybody to feel like, well, this, it's just about the old days. But the, the present days and the new days are built on the old days. And we need to find that balance of bringing that together and knowing our story. You know, people sacrifice mightily just to build this building. 
to build that gym that we use every week for so many, to build the parking lots. We can have, we have trunk or treat this week, and we have a parking lot we can do that in. Somebody paid for that and sacrificed and gave. We are creating a new heritage today. Uh, families, read Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. The relationship of husband and wife, wife and husband, and then parents to children. Parents, you are creating a spiritual heritage today. You are creating a spiritual heritage that your children are going to be building upon as they make choices and they live for Jesus Christ and change this world. You are doing that right now. Grandparents, family of God together. These are our children as a church. These are our young people as a church. We are doing that today. And finally, we are all in this together, both here and worldwide. This idea, 10% of you must come and live in Jerusalem. We need you to do this. They were not more important. They were not more valuable for God's work. But for those 10%, it was important to be there because it had to be done. And it was a sacrifice. And for the 90% that helped support them and continued to farm and bring in the crops and bring in the gifts, it, they, it was all together. One was not more important than the other, but 10% had to do this. And today, friends, we are part, and I think it's important for us to remember, we are part of something much bigger than, than, than where you sit in the pew today. We are part of God's work around this world. People are coming to Christ for salvation. People are growing and understanding God's Word. Right now as we sit here, children are over there learning God's Word. Youth group will be meeting tonight, confirmation. This week, we have an opportunity and, and, and people are called. The Gideons will be out. You know, you, you can't, maybe, maybe it's not possible for you to go to the local junior high or high school or college and stand there and pass out Bibles. If God opens that door, do it. But, but they have it organized. They have it worked out. And they're willing to do that. I remember, I remember going to pick my kids up at, at uh, Hamilton Junior High and at Ballard High School and parking there waiting for them and watching the Gideons pass out Bibles as kids came out of school. They're willing to do that. We are part of that. The offering you're going to give today is part of that. We are part of this. Every flag represented, every country, we are part of that. We are part of the work in this community. Shoreline Community Care. You name it. We are part of this together. Let's share in God's work. The 10% that are called to this ministry, the 90% called to that ministry, we do this together. The next several chapters of Nehemiah will have to be now with building the people. It's one thing to build the walls. It's one thing to build a church, a beautiful church. It's another thing to build the family of God within this church so we're not just a museum to what God used to do here. Building the people. We're going to talk about that. And I trust you'll come and share with us. We're going to ask Gary to come and, and the worship team and lead our last song. And then after that, is that right? Okay, well, what's wrong? <laughs> the offering. Okay, let's do the offering first. Thanks, Gary. You're redeemed. <laughs> You're forgiven. All right. We're going to ask our ushers to come forward. And come on, come on forward.
And um, the reason we do this, sometimes we take an offering at the end of the service in the narthex, but we, we just find this is just part of our worship, and we want to give. If you can give anything to the Gideon ministry today, anything that goes in the offering plate goes 100% to purchasing Bibles. The Gideons travel, some of them, all over the world. When they do that, they pay their own expense out of their own money. So be generous. Let's be sacrificial. Let's give the work and the ministry of the Gideons, and let's be a part of what they are doing. Heavenly Father, bless this offering. Use it for their work, uh, your work, Lord, that they do for you. And we pray, we just want to pray, Lord, and dedicate the Bibles that this money will buy, whether they're here in Seattle, in our schools, hotel rooms, the military, the prisons, or around the world, that you will use these Bibles to bring people hope through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's bow our heads for our word of closing prayer. And thank you so much for coming and sharing this worship time with us. Your presence here is an encouragement to others. And God bless you for coming today. And also, as we close our eyes, I just this morning's message has been from the Old Testament. And we made application to people in the household of faith. And I don't want anybody to leave here today uh, without... Uh, hearing and knowing for sure how much God loves you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And this morning, if you're here today and you've never received God's forgiveness for sins, I encourage you today, God loves you. Jesus Christ, God Himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son came to earth, lived a life perfection, obedience to God. He died on the cross and paid for your sins so you can be forgiven because the price for your sin has been paid for. I encourage you today, friend, if God is opening your heart to this truth, that you would acknowledge that you are a sinner, that you need salvation, and invite Christ to be your Savior. As we close in prayer in this quiet moment, you can say that to God. Say yes to God and receive Jesus Christ's forgiveness for your sins. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the privilege of being a part of your work. How humbling it is to think that you have called us and allowed us to be your servants, to be part of your family, to love you, to worship you, in spite of our uh, difficulties, our sins, our weaknesses, that we are your people. We are your family. And we pray today that we will join our hands with those around this globe and around this community and in this church family, and we will be one in our service and our sacrifice and our love and our worship for you. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.